This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome, and I'm so happy to see so many of you could make it out this morning. It's a beautiful day, and I think we have a very provocative topic today, to, to say the very least. Uh, politics unusual. Will 2016 surging outsiders finally make America multipartisan? Uh, a very complicated subject, and we have three outstanding speakers to give us their perspective on this subject. I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they will speak, and then I'm going to offer a few remarks, I hope that's okay with you, to provide my perspective on the context of some of the issues we're facing today. First of all, to my left is Henry Brady, who I think many of you know is the dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy, member of the American Academy of Arts and Scientists, a former director of UC's Survey Research Center. Uh, his interests, which are very relevant today, include electoral politics and political participation, social welfare policy, and political polling and policy-oriented surveys. Our next speaker is Lisa Garcia Bedola who is the Chancellor's Professor in the Graduate School of Education and Travers Department of Political Science. She's done a great deal of research on how marginalization and inequality uh, structure the political and educational opportunities available to members of ethno-racial groups. Uh, she also has done a number of projects analyzing how technology can facilitate voter mobilization among voters of color in California. She has a PhD in political science from Yale University and a BA from Berkeley in Latin American Studies. Our last speaker is from across the bay, Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow at Stanford University. Uh, he writes on campaigns, elections, and governance with an emphasis on California and America's political landscapes. And I might add, I've enjoyed reading a number of his columns on the web, and I look forward to his remarks. I think he does a great job of calling our attention to perhaps how we might go off in the wrong direction in analyzing some issues. Uh, he is a columnist for the Sacramento Bee and writes for Forbes.com and the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal and the L.A. Times. Uh, I've given you all kind of truncated versions of their outstanding biographies, but flyers in the back can give you more detail if you'd care to delve into those later. I, usually I jump right in by then introducing Henry to speak. Each speaker will talk for about 15 minutes, which gives us plenty of time for a Q&A, which if previous panels are any indication... I think we can look forward for a lively discussion. Uh, I've given a good deal of thought of whether I would say anything at the, out, at the outset today, but I can't help myself. I'm going to. <laughs> I, I think one of the reasons is, is uh, Peter mentioned I was a television executive for 35 years in New York, and quite honestly, I'm embarrassed as hell to admit that right now. This is a, this is a tough time to be associated with the media. Uh, I... I'm truly embarrassed in some regards, and one of the things that I, has bothered me is what I characterize as false equivalency. There's, uh, we're unwilling to just dive in and face issues with just how acerbic and tough they might be right now. So I think we're probably all familiar with Charles Dickens' quote, the first paragraph or two of The Tale of Two Cities, when he says, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was like all, the, all other times. But my perspective right now is it is the worst of times, I think. Uh, so 
There again, I'm not going for false equivalency. I'm just uh, jumping in. I think these times are terrible. And I'm going to use a couple of examples to, to hopefully illustrate that point. One, and I, this one you'll note, what I'm going to quote from makes no reference to a political candidate during this presidential campaign. This was on a completely different subject. But there was a book review in the New York Times earlier this week, and it spoke about a, a political figure of, of great significance uh, previously. And, this, and the theme of a book that's come out about this figure was that how in the hell did this person come to power? And it, it seems particularly striking because at the t- before he came to power, he was characterized as a half-insane rascal, uh, a pathetic dunderhead, uh, a, non, a, a complete fool, and a big mouth. So then the question is, how did he achieve absolute power in a once democratic country? Uh, bitterness over the harsh terms of a treaty, gearing for a, retur- uh, gearing for a return to national greatness, leveraged economic distress, leveraged ethnic prejudices and fears of foreignization, demagoguery, demagoguery, showmanship, national appeals to the masses, or nativist appeals to the masses. He had undeniable talents and obviously deep-seated psychological complexities. Uh, Regarded by many as self-obsessed, a self-obsessed clown uh, with a, a, a very impulsive style, uh, only loved himself, narcissist of a taste for, you get the idea, uh, fondness for superlatives. It's really fascinating to read. It goes on and on. Well, anyway, the book was about Hitler. And I am not making any accusation that a candidate is Hitler, but I am making the comments that sometimes great stress leads to really problematic outcomes. On the other hand, I was I would have raised Bill Whalen's excellent column. I can't know how long ago this was, Bill, the one about uh, climate change and uh, pension reform. Was that recent? Yesterday. Yeah, I just because I'd read this on the recent. web, and it's fascinating. I've been, uh, as Peter mentioned, I am very concerned about climate change and environmental issues, and I maybe go over the top on it and my obsession with it and the like, and. Bill wrote an excellent piece, and I think it was headlined, Climate Change is Important, But So Is Pension Reform. And it's a fascinating thing because in both issues, I think data sometimes is overwhelmed by dogma. There's not a real discussion of the facts. And climate change is a real issue. There's data to prove it. And the same thing is true about pension challenges. Humongous unfunded pended liabilities around. And so the question is, there seems to be an ability to deny addressing them. We ignore them. So anyway, I apologize for that. But it just I wanted to heat it up a little bit in the beginning that times are tough. Henry? It's possible that Trump is a a personality similar to Hitler. Uh, It is not possible, I think, in America for him, even if he is elected, to do what Hitler did in Germany. Weimar Republic was an exceptionally strong or a very uh, very weak, sorry, very weak political system. 
uh, and it had just come out of losing a war, a major war, World War I, a hyperinflation in 1923, and then the beginnings of uh, a worldwide uh, depression starting in 1929 in the United States with the stock market crash. We're not there. We're just not there. America economy is one of the strongest in the world right now, and we have a democratic tradition that goes back to Washington, who, remember, did not want to accept the title of king. Uh, it goes back to Lincoln, a common person. It goes back to FDR. It's simply just a different political tradition. Our heroes are not the Russian heroes of Ivan the Terrible or Peter the Great, uh, folks like that, uh, that led to, to people like Stalin. Our heroes are quite different. So I really think American political culture and American political institutions guard us to a large extent against Donald Trump, uh, even if he were to become president. I sometimes feel like I have to reassure people on these things. So they're just not so fearful of where we're going. Um, so now let me turn to the subject. By the way, on the pension thing, we have a center for governing and investing in the future at the Goldman School. We also have a center for environmental uh, public policy that deals with climate change. The Center for Governing and Investing in the Future deals with the question of how can we make sure that we have investments in millennials and how can we make sure that we do the right things by them and at the same time make sure that we solve problems like pension problems and entitlement problems which may actually have an impact on whether there's enough money to go around. So that center is actually trying to deal with that problem. By the way, the common element in the climate change and the pensions is this. It's politicians who have very short attention spans in terms of the future. Uh, they don't want to look down the road. Well, climate change is a long time from now. Uh, pension problems are a long time from now. And they trade off current benefits, often that are to their electoral advantage, uh, for future expenditures and costs that other people will bear. Uh, so that's, these two centers actually have a common underlying political issue that they have to deal with. Okay, enough about that. Uh, signs of party change. I want to talk about three signs of party change. The rise of Trump and Sanders, Trump in the Republican Party, Sanders in the Democratic Party, the large number of free-floating independents that we have, that is to say, the decline of party identification in America, and thirdly, possible new cleavage structures in American politics. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Political scientists have a way of thinking about politics, and I'll show you some pictures that illustrate that. Okay, Trump and Sanders. I'm going to go through these slides very quickly. They come from a January survey done by the American National Election Studies, the sort of gold standard for collecting data on elections. It was a study uh, that is a nationally representative sample. And in that study, people were asked which of the primary candidates they preferred. And so you get whether they preferred Sanders, Clinton, the, the governors who I put all together because there's not enough people who supported any one of them, as you may remember. Uh, Senator Rubio, um, Ben Carson, Ted Cruz, and Donald Trump. And I order them in that direction. And on the survey, this slide, by the way, I use blue for the Democrats, uh, purple for the independents, because they're a combination of red and blue, and red for the Republicans. This is the standard coding you'll see on election night, red and blue states. Um, and so you see on the Democratic side, it was pretty even between Sanders and Clinton, with Clinton a little bit higher in terms of numbers of people supporting her, which is, of course, basically how the primaries turned out. And then on the Republican side, it really was Trump uh, leading the way uh, with very little support for the other candidates or groups of candidates. So 
what I want to do is now along the horizontal axis, I've lined up the candidates, Sanders, Clinton, governors, Republican governors, Rubio, Carson, Cruz, Trump. And then what I do is I plot things. Like in this case, it's the percent who say they're born again or the percent who say they're frequent religious attenders. And the interesting thing here is that the Sanders supporters and Trump supporters actually look somewhat similar. Neither group is particularly religious. Trump maybe a little bit more, Sanders quite a bit less, but it's the middle where you get the folks who are born again or who attend church regularly. So that already begins to say that Trump is an unusual candidate. The next slide does the same thing, but in this case, educational level, it's the percentage of the supporters of that candidate who had college or more education. And what you see is Sanders supporters are typically low on education. That's, by the way, partly because he had a lot of millennials who had not finished their education yet. Uh, Trump supporters uh, are older and had finished their education and were quite low on the education front. But when again, once again, notice this curvilinear relationship that the two extremes seem to be similar in a characteristic. Now, so the summary here is that what I basically just said, uh, that they two extremes sort of converge and that Clinton and the governors and the folks in the middle are different than the two extremes. Okay, now let's look at some issues. Let's start towards attitudes towards economic issues. This is a, a bunch of questions I put together into what we call a scale, and so the, the numbering on the left is sort of arbitrary, sort of how many points you have on that scale. Uh, the issue was, is it harder to succeed now than in the past? Higher numbers mean you think it's harder to succeed than it used to be. And you see that the Sanders supporters think it's harder to succeed than it used to be. This is their concern with inequality, as we all know. And then the same thing is true of the Trump supporters. We again get this curvilinear relationship. The Trump supporters look more like the Sanders supporters than most of the other candidates. How about this one? Oppose or favor free trade. In this case, opposition is at the top, people who oppose free trade and being more or less in favor at the bottom. And what we see, again, is this curvilinear relationship. Sanders supporters are not much in favor of free trade, and Trump supporters are certainly not in favor of free trade. So on economic issues, at least these economic issues, inequality and how hard is it to get ahead in America, and the question of free trade, the Trump and Sanders supporters look very, very similar. So why didn't they get together into a party? Well, here's the reason. The attitudes towards social groups are much different. This is something we call feeling thermometers, where we ask people on a zero to 100 scale, how warmly do you feel towards certain groups? And I just chose a bunch, gays and lesbians, feminists, Muslims. So higher scores mean you feel more fondly, warmly towards them. And you see the Democratic candidates Sanders and Clinton, the people supporting them, feel quite warmly towards these groups. And you'll see that the Trump supporters do not feel very warmly at all. And that's not surprising. By the way, if I put racial groups or ethnic groups up here, I'd get the same result. So this is the, the, the same thing as, uh, uh, as you'd get for race or Hispanics or something like that. So another way in which they differ is fears of terror attack. Trump supporters very worried about terror attacks. Sanders supporters not much worried. 
Still another way is identity as an American. How important is that to you? Trump supporters, for them, it's all important. For Sanders supporters, not that important. So what you get here is a sense of the Trump supporters being xenophobic, uh, patriotic in a, in a narrow sense, jingoistic is probably a better word, uh, and worried about terror. And what you get is the Sanders supporters are much less worried about that. And that's the big difference between the Trump and Sanders supporters. They come together on economic concerns, actually, but are quite apart on these kinds of racial, ethnic, uh, if I put up some moral issues, uh, things like abortion and so forth, we'd find out they're quite different as well. Okay, so symmetry on economic issues, asymmetry on social issues and race, asymmetry on xenophobia. Okay, that tells you already that something interesting is happening in American politics. That the Republicans and Democrats have candidates who are very concerned about the economy, um, that especially in the Republican Party, there's a group which historically has been attracted to the Republicans because of their xenophobia and concerns about the changing nature of the American population. And they've actually put aside, to some extent, some of their economic concerns. But in the last six, seven, eight years after 2008, those economic concerns have become much more real. Think of the white male in Ohio who used to have a $30 to $50 uh, manufacturing job and now feels lucky if he can get a job at Walmart at minimum wage. That person feels pretty upset about what America has done to him in his mind and is a typical Trump supporter. And I think it's really important to understand that there's a trope out there that Sanders, uh, that uh, the Trump supporters are racists and that really explains where they're coming from. Yes, there is an element of dislike of blacks and of Muslims and women and gays and lesbians, all that's in the data. But in addition in the data is the fact that they feel very concerned about the economic future that they will have and that their children will have. There's a real importance to the economics of America to them. They care about the economy. And if you actually look at what's motivating their vote, economic issues matter as much as these other things. It's wrong to just dismiss them. And I'm worried that if liberals dismiss them for that reason, they'll miss the fact that these are people with real problems. And if Republicans dismiss them, that'll be easy for them to go back to trying to just get them to vote Republican based upon uh, the old race issues and the anti-abortion, anti-gays and lesbians and so forth. And that will not be good for America. Uh, that the Republicans have to take note of the fact that they've got a group within their party they've taken for granted for a long time and that now are being attracted to Donald Trump. And they're a real group with real problems. Okay, the second thing I want to talk about, just one slide, is the increasing numbers of independents. The independents are the gold line. The Republicans are the red line. The Democrats are the blue line, given our coding scheme. What you notice that the Democrats and Republicans lines are basically sort of going down over time, and the gold line's going up. What does this mean? It means fewer and fewer people are really identifying with the parties. More and more of them call themselves independents, and more and more of them are less anchored to what the parties are offering. And they're sort of up for grabs out there. And this is the kind of situation that leads to the rise of new parties. So now let me talk about cleavage structures. Uh, take two dimensions. 
Along the bottom, we've got economic dimension, and it goes from left to right. Along the vertical axis, we have a social, moral, race, identity dimension. This is very similar to the two dimensions of data I just showed you a, a moment ago with respect to Trump and Sanders. Remember the economic questions in which we had symmetry uh, and the social, moral, racial, identity kinds of questions, terror questions, on which we had the asymmetry with respect to Sanders and Trump. So, these two dimensions do a good job of explaining a lot about American politics. And what I've done is put down on the lower left-hand corner, these are people who are liberal on economic issues, liberal on the other set of issues, social, moral, racial, etc. There would be people like Lyndon Johnson, Jimmy Carter, Walter Mondale, Al Gore. Then on the upper right-hand corner, again, red and blue, by the way, notice, um, we have Robert Taft. I don't know how many people remember Robert Taft, but he was a classic conservative. Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, and Ted Cruz. I've listed them in chronological order so you can see uh, sort of how that piece of the party uh, has evolved over time. So liberals, conservatives, those have been the mainstays of the two parties. But there's also been these other folks. Here's these right-wing populists, Huey Long, Democrat, Louisiana, uh, the Kingfish, uh, George Wallace, governor of Alabama, ran for president, uh, Pat Buchanan, you may remember, and Donald Trump. It's no accident that the first two are Democrats and the next two are Republicans. Uh, if you go down to the right, Eisenhower Republicans, you've got Nelson Rockefeller, at the center of his party, actually was the vice president for his uh, party and ran for president. Then Pete Wilson and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and it's no accident that the two I could come up with there happen to be Republicans, yes, but they won in a state that in the case of Pete Wilson was increasingly becoming Democratic, and therefore he had to take pretty liberal positions on the social issues, although conservative positions on the economic issues. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, who won uh, because of the unpopularity of Gray Davis, and also one at a time when basically the state was democratic. So it, that's no accident. So in 1960, the cleavage was that vertical line. That is to say, everybody to the right was Republican, and everybody to the left was a Democrat. And it was really about economics. The social issues had not yet arisen. A crucial moment is the rise of the religious right and also the abortion decision in 1973, Roe v. Wade, and a bunch of other issues, including the 60s, uh, race issues, and so forth in America. So in 1960, it looked like this. By 1996, the cleavage was basically that line there. Everybody above uh, was a Republican, and everybody below was either a Democrat or somebody who was very, very liberal on the social issues in the state, in the case of Pete Wilson and Earl Schwarzenegger, in which they ran for office. Uh, so, and I put in bold the politicians who in nine, by 2000 were sort of pretty active. So basically, uh, by, 19, by 2000, uh, you have Pat Buchanan, Donald Trump uh, active at that time and after, George W. Bush, Ted Cruz, Walter Mondale, Al Gore, Pete Wilson, Earl Schwarzenegger. So, the cleavage structure of America has changed in the last 40 or 50 years. And the big question is, is it about to change again? And that leads to the question, which I put over to the right-hand side, where do Clinton and Sanders stand on these diagrams? What groups might get together in the future? What pieces of these different perspectives might form new parties? 
Um, I put Clinton in the middle, but actually, as I think about it, maybe she really should be down towards the lower right, maybe down here, right there, because she has a coalition that's very much dependent upon blacks and Hispanics. Uh, and has certainly been quite liberal on a lot of the social issues and emphasized them. And Bernie Sanders actually emphasized them much less, so maybe he belongs up here. By the way, notice putting him closer to Donald Trump, uh, where we know that actually some of his supporters are with respect to economic issues. So the question of realignment is really a question of, is there going to be a new pattern of people getting together on this diagram? And we'll see the cleavage line shifting in some way, therefore putting new groupings together in the Republican Party and new groupings in the Democratic Party or in new parties altogether, which are possible. Uh, unfortunately, just to finish, third parties are very hard to start in America because it's hard to get on the ballot uh, in most states. The one thing that Democrats and Republicans agree upon in every state is that it's really important that it be a Democrat or Republican who win in that state. And therefore, therefore, come up with laws that make sure it's hard for a third party to get onto the ballot. Thank you. So I'd like to begin by thanking um, the Center for Civility and Democracy and the Goldman School for having me here today. And all of you for coming here at before noon on Saturday, I think is a pretty high bar for talking about politics. So thank you all for being here. And just to say, as somebody who is, so I was a Cal grad, 92, go Bears, and uh, wanted to say it's a hard time in politics, but I also want to just say it's also a hard time on this campus, and it's wonderful to see so many alums here, and I hope you know, you'll take the opportunity to find out more about what's happening on campus and think of different ways that you can support our institution, because it's all our responsibility to keep Cal Cal, and um, I'm sure we can weather these hard times, but it's up to you guys to help us on campus get through this, so thank you so much for your support of Berkeley. Um, I'm gonna talk a little bit in a, differently in the sense that, so the, those independents that, that Pro Professor Brady was talking about, actually a, a large number of them are Latino and Asian American. So um, the groups that are most likely not to identify with a party are actually Latinos and Asian Americans. And it's not necessarily because they sort of sit in the middle of the two parties. It's not that they're moderates or centrist. Actually, generally speaking, those people vote Democratic. But it's more about whether or not they feel that attachment or that identity. People talk about party ideas and effective attachment to a group. So I'm going to talk about the degree to which uh, Latinos are connected to the political system and why looking at American politics through the lens of, of Latino voters helps us really get some insights into the health of American democracy. And so if you take nothing else from this morning, it's the first is demography is not destiny and that in fact our electorate is made, not given. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about what I mean by that. And the degree to which framing matters. So if you remember after 2012, there was a lot of discussion about the importance of Latino voters and the historic turnout of Latino voters in 2012. And so while it was true that a record number of Latino voters voted in 2012, 11.2 million, the most ever up until that point, that was only 48% of eligible Latinos. So even with a very charismatic Democratic candidate on the ballot in what was appreciated to be a historic election where you had a Republican candidate who went on Spanish language television and talked about self-deportation as a policy issue, even then you still had 52% of Latinos feeling like it, it wasn't important for them to come out and vote. 
And so it depends on, so for this cycle, um, I would argue part of the issue is that you have pretty significant population growth among, among the Latino electorate, and there's two parts to it. So the first is people who are naturalizing, although if you saw the piece in the New York Times yesterday, it looks like perhaps mo many of the people who wanted to national naturalize before the election are not going to be able to because there's a significant backlog right now at USCIS. But you always have a good you know, few hundred thousand people every year who naturalize and join the rolls. And then you have people turning 18. And Latinos on average are younger than other groups in American society, and so you have a lot more young people um, joining the electorate every year. So the electorate is growing pretty dramatically. So this is from, you know, the Pew Center is always a good place um, to get good information. So the top line is the number, um, just the aggregate number of, of Latino eligible voters, and the bottom line is the number who actually turn out to vote. So it is entirely likely that we are going to see a much larger number of Latinos voting in 2016 than ever before. The question is whether that number is actually significant given the population growth, right? So you, that, that gap, that space between those two lines is really important because that's basically the difference, what they could be in terms of voters and, and, and what they are. And what I'd like to talk about this morning is, is the reasons why that is and, and why it matters. And so what it really is, and just to put this in the context of California, is you have a pretty significant gap in engagement, right? So the blue bar is likely voters. This is likely voters as defined by the Public Policy Institute of California. Um, the data on likely voters and unregistered voters comes from them. They're one of the best sources of information about the California electorate. And so you'll see, and then the red bar is the adult population. So the, the bar should add up to 100 across. Um, but there is some, there are some differences, you know, because of rounding. Um, but essentially that, uh, Non-Latino non whites make up 62% of likely voters in the state of California, despite the fact that they're only 43% of the population. And this is in a presidential year. This, these numbers are a bit more skewed during midterm elections, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, um, because, in fact, Latinos and Asian Americans are much more likely to vote in a presidential than they are in a midterm. But the part I want to show you is that 57%, so looking at the green bars, of, of unregistered eligible voters, so these are people who are over age 16, 18 and who are citizens, 57% uh, of those in California are Latino. Right? And I think that's really something to think about. Like, why is that? And this is one of the reasons why our Secretary of State, Alex Padilla, has been working to make registration automatic. Because it's actually really difficult to register people to vote. I don't know if any of you have ever done it. But if you do, if you stand outside a supermarket, people get very cranky at you. If you go door to door, you might get two people or three people in an eight-hour shift. It's hard, brutal, boring, painful work, right? Um, and so there needs to be a better way to bring people in. But I think it's important to think about why those people are sitting out and not to think about it when, when it's a number like 57%. Clearly, this isn't just individual choice. There, there is a structural problem going on. And what I would argue is that it's because most Latino eligible voters are outside of the process of engagement and mobilization that goes on in our elections. So this was just something I did. Um, you'll notice the, the CVAP numbers, so the citizen voting age population, again, the population that's over 18 and citizen. We need to remember that about 35% of Latinos are non-citizen, and then a larger number are under 18. So you have a significant portion of the population 
that is outside this. And I know when we were talking about setting up this panel, we have to remember that the size of the Latino population is always significantly larger than the size of the Latino electorate of eligible voters because of that non-citizenship and youth. So we have to keep that in mind. When we talk about millennials, 44% of millennials in the United States are Latino. So just thinking about those differences. So this is from the American Community Survey. They have a smaller number than Pew. So if you wonder why the two charts look different, that's why. And then according to Catalyst, as of two nights ago, we have 17,769,486 registered Latino voters in the United States. That data is not perfect, but it's the best that we have, which gives you an unregistered pop population of just under 6 million. And then if you add in the people in that list who are low propensity. So what these data systems do now is they give numbers to people. Right, so basically they give you a number from zero to 100 of what the likelihood is that you're going to turn out in this election. And they do new models for every election because, because, of course, who will turn out changes depending upon the type of election it is. Very few people vote in primaries, more people vote in generals, things like that. So looking at their model for the November general election, if you look for well, who are all the people under 50, right? So from zero to 50 in terms of their propensity. So these are the people who campaigns aren't gonna call, right? Because these are the people that you think, you know, maybe they'll turn out, you have a one in two chance of getting them to turn out, you're probably not gonna spend your money on them. And so who's considered low propensity matters because those are the people on whom campaigns are not gonna spend significant resources usually in an election. And if you add those two folks together, the unregistered and low propensity voters, you have about 14 million people or almost 60% of the CVAP in the Latino community. And so if you think about political engagement as something that happens within networks, right? We don't vote as individuals. We don't complain about politics as individuals, right? We do it with our friends. We do it with our family members. We talk about what we care about. We complain about the propositions. You know, this is what we do. If you're in a network where nobody's talking about these things, right, where people are either non-citizen or they're under 18 or they've never been contacted by a campaign and so they have no information about the election, it's just harder to get involved, right? It's just harder to know and have the information to engage in politics. So the fact that 60% of those eligible voters are just never going to be part of that campaign process, they're never going to get mail, they're never going to get called, they're never going to get that kind of invitation into the system, then it makes more sense that you have the levels of disengagement that you have. And when you're in a presidential cycle, this is even worse. Because as we know, the presidential election sucks all the air out of the room um, in terms of politics, right? It's all we talk about. It's all the networks talk about. And here in California, they don't care about us, right? Nobody cares about us. We don't get to see any ads. We you don't have the same kind of investment in field. I mean, we're just, we don't matter. All, you know, 18 million voters in California, eh, they don't care about us, right? And so all of the investment, right, in infrastructure, all of the investment in field operations goes to battleground states. And we have to remember that that investment stays, right, after the election. So if you've been a canvasser and you've learned about the issues and you've talked to your neighbors and you've gone door to door, that is a skill, Right? That is a leadership skill. That is a sense of place and purpose in politics that you're going to take with you even if you don't do that in the next election. Right? And that's going to affect your networks. That's going to affect your household. And all of that leadership stays um, in those communities. And the places where that leadership is are not places where Latinos live. So what this shows, um, I know it's tiny, uh, is the, the percentage of, of Latinos in the electorate in the battleground states. And we see basically in three battleground states, uh, Latinos make up either 14% or more 
of the electorate. Florida, Nevada, Colorado. This is where all the money's going right now in terms of Latino turnout. Illinois is about at 10%. And then all the other states, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Iowa, Missouri, Ohio, New Hampshire, West Virginia, are under 5%. Right? So again, you're not building that infrastructure. You're not building that you know, uh, leadership in those communities because you're not investing in that door-to-door contact and field operations. And so it's not surprising then that you see these gaps in voting. So this is presidential election turnout among eligible voters between 1980 and 2012, according to the current population survey. And you see that in 2012, it was the first time that African-American, so African-American is the orange bar, um, non-Latino whites are the red bar, uh, Asian-Americans are the green bar that's kind of under Latinos, and then the blue is Latino voters. And so you have 66% of African-Americans turning out in, in 2012 compared to 64% of whites. And then you have what is basically, what, an 18-point gap between them and Latinos and Asian-Americans, right? So it's not by accident, I think, that the, the immigrant origin communities, and I should say not all Latinos are immigrants, not all their families are immigrant, but a good proportion of their families are. And so thinking about those networks, right, thinking about political socialization, if your parents are non-citizens, right, or if your parents are already inactive, it's very hard, difficult then to activate the children. And so that should worry us, right, because this is a growing segment of our population, and clearly the institutions we have for onboarding people into the system are not doing the work that they should. And this should be especially troubling if we look at midterm elections. Right? So the takeaway on this that you should all you know, go home with is there's a lot of white space on the top of that bar. Like, we are low, okay? The United States has the lowest rates of participation of any advanced industrialized country. Right? So the entire system is low. It's a non-participatory system. And you have under 50%, essentially, in midterm elections of eligible voters, even among whites, right? which is clearly not representative of the population. And then you have numbers down into the 20s. Right? So if we treat sitting out as rational, if we don't want to say that these folks are pathological, if we assume that they actually care about politics and the things that happen in their communities, the relevant question is, what is it about the way that we run midterm elections that makes those folks feel that it's just not something that's going to have an impact on their lives or have an impact on the things that they care about? And that's the way to think about it, because 20% is a remarkably low number. Right? And so part of the reason why turnout was so low in 14 was because a larger proportion of the electorate was made up of those folks who are turning out at that lower level. Right? And I would guess, and I know we're never supposed to prognosticate as social scientists because it's always dangerous, but 2018 is not going to look any different. Right? Um, and so just thinking about that. I think is really important, and thinking about what could we do differently. Because if 20% of people are engaging, 80% are not talking about the election. Right? And then you add in all the non-citizens, and you add in all the young people, there's no political conversation going on within these networks. And that really does matter. So I would say that we should think about Latinos as sort of the canaries in the coal mine of American democracy. And really thinking about the fact that this is a population right, of those who are immigrant origin. These are people who decided to come here. Right, who self-selected to come here. Migration is hard, right? It's difficult, it's complicated, it's painful, it's traumatic. Most people don't do it. And so the people who come here come here because they believe in our institutions, because they believe in the United States. And I think we should be concerned if people who come with such positive feelings about our system then become disengaged over time. Right? And I think what has happened is that what we've done is we socialize Latinos into the non-participatory culture that, that we have in the United States. We make voting very difficult. Has anybody received their sample ballot in California? 
It's a monster. Have you seen it? It's this thick. I haven't even opened it. it I'm scared to look at, at how much is in that thing. I mean, it's crazy what we expect people to be able to, to wade through, right? And I think every electoral cycle, we talk about the voters, right, in this very specific, as if they exist kind of a way. And I think we have to remember that who sees themselves as voters, who sees themselves as being part of the process, who thinks that they should be um, having a voice in the system is actually a political product and a historical product, and it's not a given, right? There's, there are good reasons why people sit out, just like there are good reasons why people choose to vote, and that that disengagement, as we think about that midterm slide with all that white space at the top, right, and we think about this electoral cycle and the disaffection and anger that a lot of people are expressing, I think there are ways in which our democracy is broken in the sense that there are many people of all racial backgrounds who don't think that government is a place where you actually solve the real problems that matter to you on a day-to-day -day basis. And that should be bad for all of us um, in terms of our democracy, and thinking about how low can we go, right? If if you look at those numbers, right, at what point do elections become illegitimate? We have elections in Los Angeles where 9% of eligible voters are voting, right? How is that what we really think democracy should look like? And I think it's bad for everyone. And if we think about the future, particularly of California, and if we want to have democratic decision making that really serves the people of California, we have to think about different ways to organize our elections. With that, I'll end. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lisa. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Now, Bill Whalen. So just what you're looking forward to, getting lecture two on a Saturday morning by somebody from Stanford. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you that after last night's little misadventure in Seattle, we're a little less full of ourselves than we were 24 hours ago. <laughs> November 19th in Berkeley, not looking quite as fun as it might have been. Uh, so I'm going to uh, address you in the typical high, mighty way in which I talk to Stanford students by giving you this presentation, number one. Okay. This sports fans is the election in a nutshell. <laughs> How many of you are fans of the far side, by the way? There you go. So, come on, come on, it's either one or the other. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. But the other key to the election, this is the candidate strategy to the election. <laughs> it just dawned on me coming up here, I picked bears. But, <laughs> thank you. And they're bringing grizzly bears, by the way, back to California. Gee, what could go wrong there? Um, so, interesting thing happens in presidential politics, to use a very snotty, intellectual Stanford analogy here. Driving presidential politics is all like playing a game of squash. Hands up if how many people play squash. One, two. <laughs> Great analogy, huh? But when you play squash, you're in a little tiny court in which there's a horizontal line any vertical line. And what you're taught is you stand at the intersection of that line, what is called the T, and you drive the ball back and forth and make the poor SOB behind you run until they drop or make a mistake. It's called controlling the T. Presidential politics is very much the same way you control the T. Part of controlling the T is being in the spotlight, the crosshairs, if you will, of the media, driving the conversation. But a funny thing has happened in this election. Whichever candidate is in the crosshairs of the media suffers. Donald Trump has an effective convention, gets a few points boost in the polls. And guess what happens? He has a very tragic couple of weeks with the press. His numbers go down, her numbers go up. Hillary, a couple of weeks ago, has a very bad one-week run involving the Clinton Foundation, the FBI emails, ending with her health, pneumonia. She's in the crosshairs, her numbers go down as well. Post-debate, 
not the debate itself, but post-debate, Donald Trump has had what we would all agree is a terrible, terrible week. He's in the crosshairs. His numbers go down. This is the election, again, in a nutshell. Whoever is the focus on election day, whoever the referendum is on come November the 8th, he or she may very well lose. And let's get it out of the way because you're going to ask the question, who's going to win? I don't like to prognosticate either, but I just look at some large, large general trends in this election. Beginning with this, you're going to see a lot of polls coming out in the next 24, 72 hours on what's happened since the debate. Fox News had one out last night. Uh, she received about, Hillary did, she was up by one point in the previous Fox poll. Uh, she's now up by three points in the, up, well, three points in a four-way race. Three and a four, so she received a two-point bounce. Uh, Mitt Romney got about a five-point bounce out of his. John Kerry got about seven out of his in 2004. She didn't get that big of a boost. So that doesn't bode well, but she has a better problem than he does at this point. He has a hard time surpassing 40% in the polls. She has a hard time surpassing 45%. My math skills are rather crude, I'll grant you, but I'd rather be at the 45% level than the 40% level. So advantage number one, she is at a slightly higher ceiling than he is. Advantage number two for her is that she has a map advantage. We don't decide elections by popular vote, as Al Gore painfully knows. We decide them by the Electoral College. And here she has states to give away. And the sad thing is I give these speeches enough where I can just rip this stuff off on the top of my head, but here it goes. If you set them back, back to 2012 and the results from Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, the Democrats have a 332 to 206 advantage. Nobody is writing this down. Why don't you people take notes? <laughs> this is a great thing about coming back to homecoming. You can sit in a classroom and not take notes. <laughs> yes. You just have to give money. <laughs> the doors will shut in a minute, by the way. 332 to 206 is your starting point. For the sake of argument, let's give Trump Florida where actually he has been to about twice as many times as she has. He's ahead in early voting, which is not normally happen, and she has problems turning out not the Latino vote so much, but the African-American vote. Let's seed him Florida, and let's also seed him Ohio, where she has not visited in about three and a half weeks. And again, I don't like to predict these things, but if I had to wager, I will guess that she will start moving people next door to Pennsylvania to create a firewall there. You give Trump Florida and Ohio, and he goes from 206 to 253 electoral votes. He's now 17 shy. How does he get the remaining 17? Next stop for him would be Iowa, where, again, look at the post-election bounce polls. CBS News and YouGov, an Internet polling firm in Palo Alto, does every Sunday a battleground uh, set of polls for 13 states. Look at that, folks. If he is still ahead by four or five points in Iowa in that poll, then he might survive there. That gives him six electoral votes. He's at 259. The question then is how do he get the final 11? Well, he could do it in all one fell swoop if he could gain Pennsylvania. I doubt that'll happen. Pennsylvania just does not go Republican anymore. He could pick up Virginia's 13 electoral votes, which puts him over the top, but there's a reason why Tim Kaine is on the ticket. There's a reason why she doesn't miss a chance to stop by in Northern Virginia. Uh, you're going to hear a lot about his gubernatorial record on Tuesday's debate uh, as well. So let's give her Virginia. So he's still 11 shy. So where does he have to go? No. Hello. <laughs> now it gets tricky for Trump, and here's why she has the advantage. He will look at Nevada, which has six electoral votes. He will look at New Hampshire, which has four electoral votes. Those two together are not going to do the job for him. It would make a tie, actually. It actually sent it to the House, and that's a headache, which we can answer in the Q&A as well. 
But the likely scenario is that uh, let there be light. The more likely scenario is that he would gain Nevada and he would then have to go to Colorado, which is a wildly crazy purple state of all sorts of people, disgruntled white people, um, Latinos disaffected with the Republican Party, a lot of people mellow thanks to legalized marijuana for the last few years, uh, which again we should talk about in the Q&A because that's a serious issue facing California, so that's on the ballot this fall. He has a path to 270, but it's very hard. This is a very long way of saying that she has states to shed in this election. He has to win all of those states at the same time, not losing North Carolina, not losing Georgia, not losing Arizona. So it is a precarious walk. It is on a very rickety little wood bridge over a gorge, and at all times the the bridge is rocking back and forth and the little piles are coming off, and he may make it across, but... Again, the smart money says he falls short. In fact, this is what I'm more curious about in this election right now. It's not so much whether or not Trump can win. It's the question of what happens after the election. We're at a very interesting passage in American politics right now. When Barack Obama completes his term on January the 20th of 2017, he will have served eight years in office, two terms, as did George W. Bush, as did Bill Clinton. Three conducted presidents, each serving two terms. This has happened once before in American history. Would you very smart Berkeley people care to tell me when it happened before? Madison, Monroe, and somebody then? Somebody then. (laughs) The somebody then wrote the Declaration of Independence by God. (laughs) Three in a row. Presidents three, four, and five. I'll give you you partial credit. (laughs) But you raise your hand so you get credit. It's presidents three, four, and five. Jefferson, Madison, in Monroe. Now, our current three presidents were all born 15 years apart, 1946 to 1961. These three chaps, three, four, and five, were born 14 years apart, uh, 1743 to 1757, but two key differences. Three, four, and five, presidents three, four, and five, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, were cut very much from the same cloth. All landowners from Virginia, all forged by the same experience, which was the Revolution and the founding of the Republic, and their presidencies were very much continuations, so much so that by 1820, when Monroe is running for his final term, it's been labeled the era of good feelings. Who beat, who did, who did Monroe run against in 1820? No one. He ran unopposed. That's how, dominant, that's how dominant the political system was at that time. Compare that to the era in which we live in with 42, 43, and 44. Yes, each elected and each re-elected but each one coming in with control of the Congress and each one managing to lose control of the Congress under their watch. It took Bill Clinton only two years to do the job. It took George Bush six years to do the job. And it took Barack Obama, given credit for being creative, it took him a combination of two years and six years to lose control of Congress. So in a respect, majoritarian control, what my Hoover colleague Morris Fiorino, a very bright political scientist, calls, he calls it majoritarian resentment and that the public has lashed back, not against the people in the White House, but the party that controlled Congress. And you're seeing that to an extent, perhaps, in 2016. One thing that fascinates me, and we saw it on the chart earlier with Senate races, is what happens with the Senate this fall. If we had sat here a year ago, if you'd sat there a year ago and I'd stood here a year ago, besides being much more cocky about Stanford football at the time, uh, <laughs> actually, no, they got off to a rough start last year, too. So, but. I would have given you a very, very sanguine outlook on the Republicans' chances of holding on to the Senate. Why? Common sense dictated that the Republicans had a lot of seats to defend and a lot of places where Republicans traditionally do not run well. 
like Wisconsin, Illinois, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire. But if you look at the map right now, the Republicans actually have an outside shot of holding on to 51 seats. It might end up 51 for the Democrats. It might end up in a 50-50 tie, in which case look for something which is actually a rather sad statement about the current state of affairs in Washington. In a 50-50 Congress, both parties will do their best to pluck somebody from the other side of the aisle, flip them, as we call it, and give them a great committee assignment, give them all the money in the world, clear the field for the re-election. But guess what? If you're the Republicans looking to flip a Democrat right now, there is one moderate Democrat in the entire Senate who you can flip. And that's Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who was up, I believe, in 2018 and is very afraid about his party's position on guns and coal. Two reasons why I don't see Hillary Clinton going anywhere near West Virginia. He is potentially flippable. We will see. But then the question is, who would the Democrats flip? Well, there's probably one moderate Republican right now in the whole place. And who is that? Susan Collins from Maine. She is maybe flippable. You could possibly do with her what uh, happened with Angus King, the former Republican governor who's now an independent senator. Say, Susan, declare yourself an independent. You can caucus with us, and guess what? We will not run somebody against you in the primaries. Perhaps that happens. So in a body of 100 people, in theory, this very measured body, which is supposed to be a balance against the House of Representatives and consider all weighty issues like judges and treaties and so forth, maybe two people were willing to cross the aisle to the other side of the party, so not a good statement. Again, I'm questioning how the next president is going to govern in this. If Hillary is elected, she may be looking at an outcome something like this. She may win very large in the Electoral College. She could get back up in the 300s if all of these very close states right now break in her favor, and she picks up the aforementioned North Carolina and Georgia and Arizona. Now she's looking at something very similar to what her husband faced in 1993 where he won with 43% of the vote. Two ways to approach the presidency in this scenario. Number one, I'm the king of the world. I'm the most powerful man in the world right now. And by God, my way is the highway. And we're going to do things my way. And that was a bit of the Clintons' attitude when they went in 1993. They decided they were going to go in and do what? Health care. And they very famously have a meeting with Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the late Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who ironically Hillary replaced in the Senate, and they sit down with Moynihan, and Moynihan is poised to hear one thing, welfare reform. Moynihan had been preaching welfare reform going back to his days with Lyndon Johnson. He was rather a pariah in Democratic circles for years and years talking about welfare reform and, and various uh, bad effects he thought welfare had on the, on, the, on the public. And he was just teed up because Clinton had run on welfare. And they go into the meeting, and they break his heart by telling him health care. And immediately, they lose the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. Health care reform becomes a fiasco. They lose control of the Congress as a result. It's a very bad first two years for Bill Clinton. George Bush does not have the same bad first two years because we really will never know what happened in his first two years because his presidency is just overwhelmed by 9-11 and the war on terror, just eight months into his presidency, so we don't know how far he would have gotten down the road with compassionate conservatism, no child left behind, and so forth. Barack Obama gets a victory in his first two years, he gets Obamacare, but you can argue in some respects it's a Pyrrhic victory in that it cost him the House. He loses 63 seats, the, most, the biggest loss for uh, Democrats going back to 1938. It's a, it's a tough loss for him. In some respects, he doesn't control. The question then would be, how does she approach this in this regard? Does she see her victory as a mandate for things she wants to do, or does she perhaps take a step back and accept reality, which is number one, Perhaps 55% of the public may have voted against her. Number two, she's a polarizing figure. 
And number three, the Congress will be half, if not all, Republican. The House will probably go Republican. It'll be very hard for Democrats to pick up 30 seats. Given this dose of reality, what does she do? Does she put her head down and decide to do something very big and splashy like infrastructure reform or something which will delight not just her party but maybe even go further to the left with something which will delight the likes of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren? Or does she perhaps take a different approach here and take a piecemeal approach? Perhaps the first thing she does is she invites the leaders of Congress to come down and sit with her, and they do a photo op like, she, like presidents do with state leaders, and they talk about working together. And maybe she does rather modest things in the first six months of her presidency to do two things. Number one, perhaps she's not as polarizing as we thought. And number two, gee, maybe this person who we've discounted all along can break the fever in Washington. So I'm interested in the pivot to see how she approaches this. I'm also interested on a different level to see who she surrounds herself with. She does have one flaw in that she is prone to suspicion. And perhaps in fairness to her, if I'd had been attacked like she has for the last 25 years, I'd be rather paranoid too. But as president, you have a choice. And this is the lesson of Richard Nixon. He's elected in 1969. He wins 49 states in 1972. And at no time can he let go of his paranoia. And it's his paranoia that leads us into Watergate. I'm not suggesting that she will lead us in the Watergate, but if she is paranoid and surrounding herself by the likes of people who know how to push her buttons and saying the Republicans are out to get you, the media is out to get you, she may have a hard time governing, so keep an eye on that. I have only a couple minutes left, so I'd like to talk a little bit about California in this election. And yes, we are left out, unless you're a candidate who likes to come in here and take our money and go. It is just being forever the, the loser in a one-night stand. You wake up the next morning, they're gone. There's some very bad, very bad country music songs along this line, which I can't share with you. But, um, but 2016 is especially strange because, yes, we're not part of the presidential process. We're not part of the Senate process. We have two Democrats running against each other. Question, who's getting fewer endorsements? Is it, is it Donald Trump getting newspaper endorsements or Loretta Sanchez getting endorsements from fellow Democrats? They're both kind of racing toward the bottom on that. But it's a Senate race which doesn't draw much enthusiasm. And there's a very bad trend afoot in California politics right now, and that's just to shove things to the ballot and let the people decide. And shame, shame on lawmakers for doing this because, number one, yes, it's a terrible burden on voters. That voter guide you're getting is 224 pages long. A lot of trees have unnecessarily lost their lives to California politics this year. Secondly, these are issues which the legislature could easily handle themselves if they wanted to. Why does the public have to decide about what we do about drug prices when the legislature can do it? What about marijuana legalization? Can't we let the voters vote on this? Issue after issue in which we don't need the voters to sign off. Um, the bad thing about California politics right now is initiatives have become a very skeptical game. First of all, you cannot do initiatives in primaries anymore. That got wiped out as soon as Brown became governor. Everything gets pushed to the November ballot. Secondly, if a presidential election looms, you suspect a large turnout by, by Democrats on the left, so you put everything that you think the left is going to endorse and more so on the ballot and hope it'll pass. Not a coincidence that Proposition 30, the tax increase Governor Brown wanted, was put on the ballot in 2012. Not a coincidence that the extension of the quote-unquote temporary tax increase for another 12 years goes on the ballot in 2016. So a very bad trend. I am delighted to hear that Henry is involved in a project with millennials. Uh, because this is a part of the election that screams for attention. Hillary struggles right now for several basic reasons. One is that she's been on the stage for a quarter of a century, and in a change election, she is not novel. 
Uh, secondly, she may struggle because she will be the oldest first-time Democratic nominee in the history of this country. She turned 69 not long before the election. You have to go back to James Buchanan in 1856 to find a Democrat of similar age. He was 65, also a former Secretary of State and a pretty lousy president, so not a great role model there. But it may be, it may be that the Democrats are having an odd time accepting a candidate who is 69 years old because Democrats tend to fall in love with candidates in their 40s. Jack Kennedy, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, all men in their 40s with young families talking about youth and all that, and she has a challenge express about being that. They've also struggled with just her basic branding. Is she going to be kind of the hip grandma who dances on Ellen? Is she going to be, is she going to be uh, the version of Angela, Mut- uh, Angela Merkel being our mutter, being our mother and kind of consoling us all? They haven't quite figured that but she struggles with several basic groups. One is that she struggled mildly with African-Americans. If you notice during the presidential debate when they talked about birtherism, she gave about a two-minute soliloquy about America's first black president and about Donald Trump maybe being a racist landlord and then Michelle Obama being brilliant. She is pushing that as hard as she can. But secondly, she struggles with millennials who are very cynical, probably even more cynical because Bernie jumped over and endorsed her in this campaign. Uh, we haven't had time to get in this, but we, maybe we can in the Q&A. Uh, we were going to talk about the third party today largely, but the third party is pretty much thizzled in 2016, and there's a question moving forward as to what role they will have. Gary Johnson and Bill Weld have 8% of that latest Fox poll. Jill Stein is down at 2%. I wrote a column in Real Clear Politics uh, last week trying to throw out egg-headed uh, solutions for how to, how to fix the debate process, which I find very frustrating, as you might as well. Uh, I would like to get away from the age of lone moderators and have maybe some journalists behind them asking questions as well so we can get away from the obligatory bias question but maybe address things that didn't go discussed in that conversation, such as Supreme Court appointments, such as illegal immigration didn't come up once in that debate. Uh, but secondly, I would like to see them change the threshold on eligibility for presidential debates, which are twofold. One is you have to be on the ballot in enough states to win 270 electoral votes, i.e. you're viable to be president. But secondly, you have to have 15% in a sample of five polls. Why not drive it down to 5% or 10%, let's say? Let's put the bar at 10%. Gary Johnson's sitting out there at about 8.5% at the time of the cutoff for the first debate. Would have been a very interesting proposition. The media would have paid a lot more attention to him if he was right on the edge of the debate. It's like watching the Giants in the playoffs right now. And that baseball did a very bright thing a few years ago. They expanded the playoff pool, added an extra wild card slot, so now you have three or four teams competing, whereas they would not. Why not make it a little easier for the third-party candidate to get on the ballot? And Gary Johnson, 8.5%, by the way. Ross Perot was at 8% in 1992 when he got on, the, got on the debate panel. Well, he got on the debate because he'd been uh, leading in the polls early in the summer, but the point was he had a voice in maybe Johnson, too. Um, Anyway, there's a lot more we can talk about about this. Uh, it's going to be very fascinating, 30, what, 38 days or so, winding down into this election. Uh, hold on to your seats there. Vice presidential debate showing up on Tuesday. I trust you all are going to tune in. Um, this is, again, a problem, and shame on the voters for this. The, the, the steel cage death match that was Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton drew about 85 million people. Um, if history is any indication, the Veep debate is going to lose about half of that audience, uh, maybe around 50 million or so. But guess what? That's going to be the adult conversation because they will probably get into various policies that were not addressed. Um, then we have two more debates after that, the 9th and the 19th. And then let's see come the morning of about the 20th where this race is locked in. If she is still about three points ahead of him, she's going to win unless, and this is the kind of thing that kids, people like Henry, uh, fully employed and fully occupied, 
he wins on election day, which means that a lot of voters who didn't show up turned out, which means a lot of political science gets turned on its head. So a fundraiser. Final note, by the way, one thing I love about Stanford is I get to do some rather fun speaking gigs, one of which is I get to go to Cancun in the middle of October to give a speech. And I've yet to buy my ticket for the trip, but it may be, may be a one-way ticket. So <laughs> in that case, adios. Good talking to you. Thank you all very much. I thought three terrific presentations, I think, probably expanded our perspective on, on a lot of these issues. Uh, we'll take questions from the floor now. I can't help but make two observations in response to Henry. One was he referenced to short attention spans, and that brought memories to me because when I was working at uh, the Comedy Channel, we introduced Jon Stewart to television, and his first show was called Short Attention Span Theater. Uh, the other one is the references to Hitler and things being different in the United States, and that's, I, you make a very strong point that that is true. At the same time, you referenced that George Washington turned down the monarchy, or the, right. uh, I don't think Donald Trump would. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, let's open the floor to questions, and we'll try and move around right to left. Um, thanks for a great stimulating presentation. Um, I have a question looking towards the 2018 midterm elections. How does this uh, crisis of stressful times become an opportunity to reconstruct our democracy? And if we're looking at a t uh, planning horizon of 2018, I look to that banner, 100 Years of Knowledge, 1968. And of course, you know, what kind of effort could be drawn around? This will be, 2018 will be the ses sesquicentennial of that. And how do we look at promoting this unity, even with UCAL Berkeley working with Stanford, looking to 2018, and whatever sort of idea around this, how it could evolve and you know, make it the idea of the graduating classes of 2018? Well, I, I think uh, you know, we work slowly and incrementally, but I hope we do eventually have an impact. Take climate change, for example. I think you could argue that UC Berkeley was in the forefront of pointing out the importance of that and trying to figure out ways to deal with issues of sustainability and, and other things. And I think we continue to be very much in the forefront of that. We've got extraordinary researchers. This new center we just started on governing and investing in the future is actually now trying to look at issues like the pension issues. Stanford has some very good people looking at those issues as well. And I'd like to think that slowly but surely we build a basis for people recognizing that they really must attend to these issues. It's surprising how far we've gotten on climate change, that despite the fact that this is something that happens far in the future, nevertheless, we have some attention being paid to it. It'd be nice if we could do the same thing with some of the fiscal problems that we face. Uh, unfortunately, the Democrats, for example, like to poo-poo these things like, oh, that's not really a problem. They are really problems. The evidence is pretty overwhelming. And I'm really proud that our school has got a center that's looking at these problems and, and trying to uh, do what Stanford's already tried to do, which is to bring people's attention to them. So that's one area in which maybe we can have an impact. And there's lots of others, but that's one example. Well, and, and I think this is where it's so important to have a top flight research institution that has a, a public mission, right? And I think appreciating that the knowledge that's produced on this campus really serves the needs of communities who are trying to find real solutions to real problems that, that face communities. And I just want to say, 
you know, every time I go to DC, coming back to California gives me optimism because, in fact, there are, is a lot of good work going on in California. So think about how to change the system. We have a statewide organization called California Calls, as an example. That's a coalition of, I believe, 23 community organizations across our state. They're the ones that are going to be calling people about Prop 55 in order to extend funding for education and health care. But more importantly, they're having conversations with people all through 2017 about the ways in which they need to engage in order to ensure that our government institutions serve them and serve the needs of their communities. And so I think there's a tremendous amount of good work and, and best practices going on in the state that hopefully will become amplified and extend to other parts of the country so that people feel more like they're actually um, part of the governance structure and they actually have a meaningful voice in the things that matter to them. Yeah, um, I, th I think the, the concept here is bully pulpit, academic bully pulpit. Uh, there's a reason why climate change uh, has taken effect in California, and even nationwide, if you look at the polls, this is one of the reasons why I wrote this column. Uh, Jerry Brown uh, talks very harshly toward his critics on climate change, uh, which I don't understand why, because he's winning the war. The polls show that the public is with him on this, so uh, the same tactical mistake that Hillary Clinton made in terms of denouncing Trump supporters Bash your opponent, but don't bash the people supporting the opponent if you want people, win people over. Uh, but one reason why climate change is as grown as a concept in California been accepted is because both Brown and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and by the way, this week uh, upcoming is the 10th anniversary of the signing of AB 32. They both will take a very big victory lap on this. Uh, they have used the bully pulpit to full effect um, on this. Uh, one of the challenges in 2018, which is a huge election in California in this regard, we have a gubernatorial election in which the winner will probably be in office for eight years. Uh, the last time we kicked out a first-term incumbent in California was 1942. Um, so that person is going to be around for eight years. And we're also, if Dianne Feinstein does not run for re-election, she will be 85 years old. She is the oldest senator uh, in the Senate, uh, but she is raising money and making every indication she wants to go again. If she does not run, then there's an opening there. And I like to joke that being elected senator in California is the equivalent of committing a crime because you get 25 years to life. Um, <laughs> so this is a chance to bring forward candidates, a new generation. I won't filibuster too much longer, but a new generation of California Democrats. Jerry Brown being 80, will be 80 years old when he leaves office. Barbara Boxer, who's leaving office, is 76. Dianne Feinstein. Uh, is 83 years old. It's one of the great contradictions in American politics. This state, which spends more money, arguably per capita, than any other state in America in the pursuit of youth, be it diet, exercise, cosmetic surgery, you name it, we have the oldest leadership. But that's about to change. You're about to get younger Democrats coming in with a new set of sensibilities and perhaps an opportunity to take things differently. They will be limited in terms of what they can or cannot say based upon where they get their money and what their interest groups keep them on. So... It's really, I think, up to academic institutions to be that bully pulpit, to push them on these things, try to shame them on them if need be, try to force them into the debate that they don't want to have. Right here. Thank you for a very insightful conversation. I was wondering, in terms of the third-party emergence, um, we know clearly that 13 million of the Democrats in primary voted for a socialist, and equivalent number of them voted for Trump in the Republican part. What is your opinion about uh, safe state strategy that they're advocating? Like in states like California, Texas, New York, those people would be voting for a Green Party or, or, or Libertarian, because their vote doesn't matter anyway in those states, whether they vote for Hillary or Trump? Well, I, I seriously doubt it's going to lead to many people voting because in the end it's the, the two parties that get most of the attention. You may get a little bit of 
uh, voting there. But the, the basic problem is that if there's going to be a reorganization of the parties, it probably has to happen more within one of the parties. Uh, like, I think there's a really interesting issue about how the Republican Party is going to reform itself. Uh, and whether, for example, it is going to take into account the economic concerns of Trump voters uh, and figure out that they actually have to get beyond some of the policies they've been proposing and have some constructive ways to help people who are hurt by free trade. The worker in Ohio that I talked about, uh, that those people are hurt by free trade and we maybe need some programs to help those people. And that means probably a somewhat activist government. It's not sort of in the genes of a Ted Cruz, but it maybe is in the genes of some of the, the governors who have run, the Kasichs or the, uh, the Bush, uh, Jeb Bush and, and some of the others. Bill, your uh, analysis of what would happen with a Hillary victory was very interesting. I wonder if you could give us your sense, if, if Trump won, what to expect? And the other one is, if Trump loses, how do you think the Democratic, I mean, the Republican establishment will respond to that? And, uh, maybe, Lisa, you could speak to that as well in regards to Hispanics. And that if Trump loses, I think it's safe to assume, even if it's a diminished count from what it should be, Hispanics will have played a role in that. So maybe first, Bill? So this Cancun event that I mentioned is actually an international event with uh, government leaders from the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. And I was looking at the program the other day to see who I knew uh, and also to see if they spelled my name right on the program. And <laughs> they spelled my name right, but then underneath my national affiliation, they put Canada. So <laughs> Pre preview of coming attractions. Uh, so, yeah, if Trump wins. Um, oh, my Lord. So... How many of you saw the movie The Candidate? Yeah, 1972 movie. And what's the last line in that movie? What do we do now? Uh, you're Donald Trump on election night. This gets back to the concept of, am I the king of the world, or am I winning but also eating a lot of humble pie at the same time? Does he think he's the king of the world now, or does he again look at the political reality in that not only did 55% of the people vote against him, but unlike his opponent, he has no earthly idea of how to run a federal government. So can he surround himself? I don't think the challenge will be finding people to work for him. Uh, people will do it just given human nature and opportunity, maybe a sense of patriotism and saving the country from itself, if you will. He will find people to work for him. The question is, is he willing to take direction and is he willing to be practical? For example, I mentioned Hillary doing piecemeal things. Trump also, Trump will want to go in and the first thing he'll want to do is build a wall. And the reality is what? He won't get a single Democratic vote and he'll have a very stubborn Republican Party not wanting to do it. So a much smarter approach, kick that down the road and focus on lower hanging fruit for Trump, something like, say, tax reform, where there's actually a Republican and Democratic interest in doing something like that. Again, taking a piecemeal approach to do things small. But here's the problem. It's hard to just see him managing this job on a day-to-day -day basis, given his ego. Uh, during the whole span. attention span and just also his own behavior. Um, the funniest thing that struck me during the whole Hillary email fiasco uh, was the anecdote of one of her aides taking a hammer and smashing, smashing a phone. There, that kills emails. They're all gone. Um, <laughs> if I were running the Trump campaign right now, I'd have somebody with him standing outside his bedroom at night and wait for the lights to go out and 15 minutes later sneak in, smash every device within sight. <laughs> Anything he could possibly get his mitts on at 3 o'clock in the morning and start tweeting with, but... This is the problem with the, with the presidency in that it's the temperament and it's the hot-headedness 
and letting things get under your skin, things said about you in the press. My God, if he gets upset about what's said about him in the press during a campaign, what happens when you're a president and the criticism of you is, comes at your way hundredfold? So, um, but again, it's the question is, can he actually accept the hand that was dealt to him as president? Not that he was elected because he was Donald the Magnificent, but because he's elected president because more people voted against her than they did against him. Lisa, how about the Hispanic? going forward. Right. So I'm also worried about him losing. I mean, I think the first thing he'll do as president is to put guilt all over the White House. I think that would probably be the first thing. But um, if he loses, his concerns about democratic institutions and his comments about democratic institutions being rigged, I do think is really dangerous and, and potentially destabilizing. And so I worry about how that's going to play out, how he will, he's, he doesn't seem to be a very good loser. So I think there's that part that I'm worried about. In terms of a postmortem, if we think about the postmortem in 2012 when, when Romney lost and, and the supposed acceptance on the part of the Republicans that they had to reach out to a more diverse electorate, um, the problem is we t- tend to talk about swing voters as a somehow substantive policy doesn't apply, right? And if you look at public opinion polls, if we think about Latinos, they're much more likely to say, would you rather have a larger government and more services or a smaller government? They say larger government. They believe in social programs. They believe in unions. They believe in redistributive tax policy, right? They believe in a whole lot of things that, that at least until, I'm not sure what Trump believes in, but theoretically the Republican Party hadn't believed in. And so the choice after 12 was either actually change your policies to try to maybe peel off a portion of those folks, maybe within this economic framework that we've talked about, or double down on the Republican leading, leaning white voters that about 20% of whom don't turn out. And I think the Trump candidacy is really about doubling down on those voters. But in the end, there will have to be a policy change if you want to meaningfully open your tent. And so I'm not sure that the coalition, given kind of the, the tenor and, and um, language that has been used in this campaign, I'm not sure that that's possible in the current environment because the level of vitriol has been so high and so disturbing. Um, you know, I think it will take a while before that new, whatever that new party is, you know, whether it takes shape. But even Cubans in Florida are not voting Republican at this point. So. I, I think you know there, there's there's something wrong in, in the side, and, and it's because of the pol- I think we have to remember it's because of policy. It's not because of personality. It's not because of charisma. It's really what are you actually espousing, and you know you're not espousing what people believe in. Thank you, um, thank you all. I was just wondering if um, sort of the reason that we didn't talk a lot about third parties is because you guys sort of there's a consensus of their like unviability. Um, and if so, why do you think that it's important, um, Professor Whalen, that they should be included in the debate if sort of there's an institutional bias towards like the two-party system? Right. Uh, so I would argue that if Gary Johnson were at 10%, put him in the debate for this simple reason. Uh, at 10%, to me, he has shown sufficient national stature to merit it. Uh, secondly, at 10%, he has a potential to be a disturber. Ross Perot got 19%, almost 20% of the national vote in 2000 and 2000, 1992. I should know this. I worked on the Bush campaign. Uh, go to Bush reunion, by the way. You never talk about that. Um, but he only got, he got less than 20% of the vote, but he thoroughly upended the election. Bill Clinton won states he normally wouldn't win. I'm not sure if Bush would have won without him, but Perot was a big factor. Johnson at 10% could still be a factor this election in terms of his effect. Colorado, let's say or New Hampshire, so I would put him on the stage in that regard, the same way that Ralph Nader in 2000 was a factor. Ralph Nader cost Al Gore the presidency. Ralph Nader will fight this to his grave, but 
Go look at the numbers. He took away votes in New Hampshire and Florida, ballgame. Uh, so I'd put him on the stage because he's relevant, plain and simple. I would also put him on the stage in this regard. If we're going to have a debate where there's just one person, a Lester Holt, a Chris Wallace, who, who have you, who's going to go in certain directions, sometimes it might be a good idea to have a third candidate who might be able to reel in the conversation and say, well, this is all good and swell that we're focusing on fill in the blank. This is Clinton's emails, Donald Trump's, you know, you know, insults toward a beauty queen, but what is this doing about immigration? What is this doing about your taxes? In other words, that third-party candidate, though, way down in the polls, might be the adult presence you need in the debate. I work at the Hoover Institution, which believes at all times in free market competition, so I, I advocate political free market competition as well. If you're going to grow a third party in America, you're either going to do it uh, organically, on its own. People are going to rise up and rebel against the two parties, or you're going to have to do it non-organically, which means Michael Bloomberg's going to have to put in $500 million of his own to create a movement, if you will. So I would contend that if you give the third-party candidate some national airtime, that's 85 million people who otherwise don't know if Gary Johnson exists, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Gary Johnson right now cannot get airtime. I'm not a Gary Johnson supporter, by the way. Uh, but he has a very hard time getting in attention other than going on CNN or MSNBC and getting gotcha'd. Um, so, you know, Put them out there. But here's the problem. The, the debate commission, uh, I have friends who work on the debate commission, but the debate commissions and the two parties will push back because why? W.C. Fields never give a sucker an even break. They do not want to give the third parties that opening on national TV to make people think, hmm, there's an alternative here. Uh, unfortunately, we're at noon, but I hope that as we've done in the past, perhaps our panelists could remain up on stage for a few minutes afterwards if people want to come up with, with a question or two. Uh, I want to thank our speakers for, I think, an absolutely terrific job.